Hello and welcome to the Private Practice Made Perfect podcast. I'm Cathy Love. I started life as an OT, had a, an amazing, crazy private practice which I sold. And what I do now is help allied health business owners create a business that serves them, the time, the money, the joy that they absolutely deserve. And this is where my idea for the podcast started. What I want to do is to capture how hard allied health business owners in Australia work to achieve their dreams, to support their teams, to create amazing outcomes for their clients. So sit back, beverage of choice, drive safely, walk carefully, however you're listening in, and I hope you absolutely enjoy Our guest today on the podcast is Nick Pidcock, the founding director of Pidcock Law. Welcome, welcome. Thank you, Kathy. My absolute pleasure to be here. So let's just start right at the very beginning. What can you tell us about your law background? Law background? Yeah, like just maybe um, the shorter version. The short version, um, I've been doing it ever since um, I had uh, left school far too long ago um, and realised I didn't have the brains nor the um, the uh, capacity to deal with blood and guts. My dad was a vet, always wanted to be a vet um, and really? couldn't sadly follow in his footsteps. I, yeah, left school realising that... Um, Despite those limitations, I might be able to do some some good things and um, went into law straight from school, worked as a little monkey boy for a floor of barristers, and I studied part-time at night. And I had a great um, experience sort of throughout my progression, if I'm allowed to use that word. It sounds sort of a a bit sort of airy. But, uh, yeah, worked for barristers. I worked for a judge, a district court judge. Um, I worked for big law as a trolley jockey. And um, I've also then worked in um, regional New South Wales in Orange for about seven years. That was an absolute delight working there. And for the last 13 years, I've been based here in Newcastle. And as far as what sort of law I do, uh, I guess simply it's business law. A lot of people like to use flouncy terms like commercial. I'm a commercial lawyer, but yeah, look, simply, I'm I'm a business lawyer, and I look after businesses. That's what I try to do. I think we need to pull this business law bit apart a little bit more because uh, I think a lot of business owners think they don't need a lawyer, but then they really need a lawyer, like <laughs> literally by four o'clock that day. But as a business lawyer, where where does your attention go? Like, what work do you do for that? Well, it's it's interesting. Interesting you put it that people don't um, want a lawyer until they need a lawyer. And that's where those buzzwords proactive and reactive come in. So as a business lawyer, I have the great fortune of working across all ambits of business law. Um, I'm really fond of particularly startups. Um, I've been involved in that space for a long time now, uh, particularly in the sort of allied health industry. I have some great supporters here and referrers uh, in the form of the local business centre, a fantastic bunch of people. And um, as far as what, what we do is it's really everything from inception, from the idea or the notion of I'm going to go and start my own business um, to educate you 
to understand what's involved in that, what type of exposure you need to have, how to minimise risks, and then to sort of help you, guide you along that journey. I mean, lawyers aren't simply there to sort of crack heads and object, and I strenuously object. We're there to help, and that's that's our sort of mantra here, certainly in New South Wales through the Law Society. Helping you is our business. Yeah. When I uh, had my private practice yonks ago, uh, I was very fortunate to have a, a fabulous neighbour who happened to be a lawyer, or I happened to have a very fabulous lawyer as a neighbour, <laughs> and I've always been a fan. I've always been a fan. And Wow. I, I, I think through him, for all the right reasons, really stepped into using him very proactively. So we used to meet every six months and it was almost me reporting to him about the update, the status, what we'd been working on, what challenges we'd had. Because my thinking was if I ever needed him quickly, I didn't want to be losing time roofing him on all the background. So we just had this rhythm where... He was up to date. He was across most elements of the business mm. twice a year. There may have been wine back in the days and there was always an invoice as absolutely anticipated, but it was just squaring that stuff away and having that, having him and his extraordinary knowledge in my corner so that we could respond to whatever, well, we could proactively prevent a whole ton of stuff, but we mm. could also respond quickly in the event. Um, and in in fact, I did need him several times um, very quickly, and he was he was primed, good to go. I think that's a wonderful and really healthy approach mm. to any type of you know professional relationship you have, especially with a lawyer. If you think of it in terms of you know with a car, you have to take it for a scheduled service. I don't know every six months or something. You have your dental checkup every. So often, probably that reminds me, I've got to make a call after this. Um, you, you go and see your GP as well. Yeah. And I, I think, yeah, using the word proactive is, is spot on because if you are dealing with things before they evolve and before they become a problem, that's when the problem escalates. If you check in from time to time with your lawyer. I think it's a really good idea because that's when you realise or identify potential risks and that's when you can take steps to address them before they become a problem because when it becomes a problem and when you start acting reactively, that's when it's expensive and more often than not you lose control. So yeah. I think what a wonderful um, relationship and I like the fact that there's also... Uh, elixir involved yes. as well. Yes, 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 yes. So very, very grateful um, to him. And and it also meant that he had good operational, well, decent operational understanding of the of the business um, and also knew what I wanted to achieve with it um, and was incredibly helpful during the process of selling the business as well and a great advisor in my corner on, on that front. But you know, he also worked all of our wills as well because the business was part of part of that. And I think so many business owners choose not to think about that. If, you know, if I had a bunch of allied health business owners in the room, 100 of them, and said who's got a current will, mm. I don't know how many hands would go up. I'd hope at least half, but maybe not. But your business becomes personal in some of these circumstances as well. 
Well, absolutely. And I think you'd be optimistic thinking you'd have a 50% hand I, raise I, on I that bill. It's, it's summer. It's but, but no, it's very close. Most people sadly don't because mm. you don't think about that bigger picture. And that's all part of um, having good oversight of not just your business, but as you say, I mean, yes, your business is a separate entity, but it is effectively you as the business owner, the business operator. So you have to ask yourself, and unfortunately, that's what we as lawyers do. We always think about worst case scenario. Um, ask yourself, what would happen if I did pop my clogs tomorrow? What happens with the business? What happens with my family? What arrangements have I made as far as those things are concerned? So, yeah, look, they're sometimes morbid and challenging things to think about and morbid and challenging discussions, but they've got to be done because it's good business, simply. Mm, you're going to love this story and we must have to edit it out. But we were meeting at the kitchen table going over the, the wills and our, um, our daughter came in. We will have to edit this out. Our daughter mm. came in and we were sort of finishing, but we knew we had like another meeting and we told her what we were doing and she said, who gets me? And so it opened up the whole conversation with her on the spot about what that could look like in yeah. a in an age-appropriate kind of way. But, in fact, we'd actually realised we hadn't nailed all of that stuff down yet, so we didn't actually have an answer. But that's that's how practical law needs to be. I, I just don't see anything to be frightened of around this stuff. No, and that's, I, I look, the, the, the phrase plain English is used <laughs> probably too much. Yeah. But fortunately, we've moved, I think, as a collective, as a profession, we've moved now to becoming more consumer focused, mm -hmm. is how is it that we get our message across? How best can we mm -hmm. say what it is that we think you should understand, you know, as a business operator, as a person, as a family, family person, you know, you mentioned, um, you know, ha having daughter and making provisions for those things, too. So, yeah, it's not a clinical exercise simply in respect of here is a cylinder, that is my business, and that's all I need to worry about or think about. Um, there is certainly a much, much greater ambit. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We uh, both enjoy working with startups, right? And you've mentioned that um, before we kind of hit record. Why, why is it so important to get the startup phase as correct as possible? That's a good question. Um, the exciting thing about a startup is it is literally a notion. It's a belief, you know, and you see or have the having the privilege of being involved from the time of that simple thought. Um, it's a wonderful notion, but like a seed, you know, you, you can't just stick it in a drawer and hope the plant's going to grow. Yeah, you've you got need to treat... more than optimism and good luck. Absolutely. Yeah. That's the thing is if you have, if you put yourself in the position to understand who it is you are, what it is you do, and what it is you want to do, then the next step is to have a better understanding of how it is you go about doing those things and how it is you best go about doing those things. And those things, yeah, I, you could find them on um, 
on the intraweb. You could Google it. You know, it's like um, pretty good advice in Facebook. WebMD, you know, I've got a few ailments um, that have been self-diagnosed. Look, it's um, you could literally fall down that rabbit hole and find all of the wrong answers. So you need to understand those fundamentals. Who am I? Where am I going? What do I want to do? And how am I going to do it? And in realising the how, that's where you, you have to also, unfortunately, realise your own limitations. I don't go and do my own dental work, for example, although some would beg to differ. But um, you need to realise that there are people out there who are experts in their respective fields who will hold your hand and help you through this process. You find yourself a good accountant. You find yourself a good uh, insurance broker. Um, Dare I say it, find yourself a good lawyer. These people will help you realise that simple thought, that simple notion, they'll take that seed and they'll tell you how best to place it, to plant it, to nurture it, to look after it. So, yeah, um, that's something I've personally um, come to realise because I've I've been a lawyer, admitted as a lawyer since, I think, 1999. Um, So I've been doing it for quite a while. But the thing is that no one at law school ever teaches you how to be a business person. So, you know, very late in the process when I started my own show, I realised I don't know how to do these things. I need an accountant. Um, I need to think about bigger picture as far as myself, my business, my family, and to make proper provision. So I've seen a financial advisor. I've got on board a great insurance broker. These things are necessary in building proper foundations because if you don't do it right from the beginning, you go back, like we said before, proactive versus reactive. Mm. It's very difficult to, you know, effectively rebuild a house if your foundations are buggered, for want of a better phrase. Mm. I think there could be a mindset of, well, I'm a professional. I've got a degree. Everyone else has done it. How hard could it be? And it, it might that might be okay for a little while, but... Things can go wrong or be going wrong and you might not even know. Mm. It it will catch up at some point. Like the things we've had to unscramble um, that are preventable and meanwhile there's been time and stress and cost and... (sighs) Look, I I think um, there's a a real distinction between confidence, which is a wonderful thing, and and hubris. Mm. Um, Maybe call it arrogance if you like. Um, Will we throw in ignorance? Sorry, Will or otherwise? <laughs> yeah, look, I, I think you need confidence and you need self-belief in order oh, to, to, to start your own business, absolutely, because if you don't have that, you are going to flounder. Mm. But as I said, you need to understand that, um, what is it, the jack-of-all-trades, master-of-none analogy, mm. Uh, Yeah, you you can't be all things to all people, especially yourself. You you literally are kidding yourself if you think I can do all of those things without anyone else's assistance. Um, Yeah, I I mean, by all means, try, but that's where you get into the sticky spot where you start to have to reverse sort of um, engineer and overcome the problems that 
are avoidable. Yeah. Yeah. And you, yeah, you know, the the motivators for going into your own allied health business will often be around greater flexibility, greater freedom, maybe the opportunity to earn more money and provide for your family. And some of those things are the very first things that you lose um, in those early, early couple of years. And with some good advice, and we kind of talk about having the right people around the table at the right time for the right reason. Uh, and that's certainly been my business experience. Always had a range of um, people that are way smarter than me in their fields. They're at the table at the right time. And I've always made a point of making sure they all know each other as well um, so that we've got that whole picture feeding feeding in. Yeah, I think that's um, that's really key. Um, to use the oft-used um, word, buzzword, collaboration, if. Uh, not if, you should, and in fact, you must. Once you engage with your varied professionals, it's Im- absolutely imperative that they be introduced and that they be given a direction by you as, as the business owner, the new business owner, that they should all work together. Uh, a, collaborat- a collaborative approach is just incredibly powerful. You know, to be able to, as a lawyer, to pick up the phone and speak to um, a client's accountant. Exactly. I mean, this, you know, just for example, only yesterday I spoke with a client's accountant who'd been involved with the business throughout its certain incarnations for, I think, 13 or 14 years. So the insight he brought to the table without me having to go back and, and ask my client, impede on their time, impose on their time, to be able to literally sponge up that information from the account in one telephone call, uh, it, you know, and then I, I have a greater understanding of what it is I'm dealing with, the expertise of who it is that I'm dealing with. And, yeah, I mean, you are greater than the sum of your parts, obviously, parts, yeah. you're bringing in others um, to assist. And, look, from, from my perspective, an incredibly powerful tool and of exceptional value to, to a client to have those. It's the, the proverbial two heads are better yeah. than one. Yep, yep, saves a ton of time and and, and stress. Let's uh, maybe have a bit of discussion about some of the challenges that startup school businesses might experience. And off the top of my head, there's things like, well, I'm a sole trader. Why would I want to go to a company? I'm thinking of, um, I think I've got contractors, but maybe they're employees. Or have I got employees and what sort of employees? Mm -hmm. I think I've got the right insurance. Um, Commercial lease for properties. Uh, I guess they're some of the big ticket items. There's a bunch of others. But what's a good way to kind of get people thinking about the entity that they're trading from? Yeah. Um, Without giving legal advice away because yeah, well, exactly. one, I, right? Uh, well, there's the great big asterisk, obviously, on this. Um, whereas that would the, be a good time for the disclaimer, Nick, I reckon. Does not constitute legal advice. Um, yeah, look, as far as the, the who am I, that was one of the questions I, I raised earlier. Mm. In working out who, who am I, you know, what, what do I do? Who am I and what do I want to be and how do I want to provide it? That's really part of a question from the very beginning is do I want to approach this as a sole trader? So that's me, Nick Pidcock, um, trading as 
lawyers are us. Uh, the issue there, as far as an exposure or risk point of view, is that if I'm operating as a sole trader, then it's my head, literally and personally, in the noose. If something goes awry, then it's me, Nick Pidcock, who who that person looks to for remedy. So, look, you're exposed as, as an individual if you're a sole trader, it's the bottom line. If you were to have the benefit of creating a company, and, again, this is something your accountant will advise you wow. on. Wow, because there's tax implications across these entities as well. Absolutely, absolutely. If you create a company, it, it the company itself is recognised at law as a separate legal entity. It effectively is a compar- comparable to a person. It can do all things, enter contracts, you know, buy and sell property. But the beauty of the company is that if something goes awry, heaven forbid, then the person who is um, aggrieved turns to the company for their redress or their remedy. Mm-hmm. The benefit there is that, in effect, you as the director of that company, so you're the brain of the company if you like, but provided you don't breach certain obligations as a director and you're doing the right thing, then it's the company itself that wears that problem. And me personally, as the director, I'm not exposed, again, provided you're not breaching your director duties. So, again, very, very wise thing from the outset. Go and speak with your accountant, get some good advice as far as... Um, those two entities, their distinctions. Um, the problem I have with sole trading, as I said, from a risk and exposure point of view, you're personally in the hole. And if you own personal assets, for example, like a house, um, I don't know if anyone owns a house nowadays, but at least you might own the doorknob or something. Yep, that they might kindly let you reside there. That, that it could, but if that house and any other assets you have, they're, they're on the line if you're yeah, a yeah. sole trader. So if you're in your name. But again, get that advice. It's it's will be worth its weight in gold. Running a business isn't just about setting up shop and becoming complacent. It's about showing up for ourselves and our clients with a commitment to continuous improvement. We have to be honest with ourselves about where we're at and where we're going. That means identifying strengths and weaknesses so we can improve. After all, if we're remaining stagnant, how can we scale and build the business and life of our dreams? That's where the NACAR Consulting Allied Health Biz Quiz comes in. We're not talking horoscopes and pulse hope here. This questionnaire is the perfect starting point for you to begin identifying your strengths, needs, and blind spots as an allied health business owner. The process is simple. Answer the 14 questions and we'll send you a personalized report that includes actionable steps for you to start taking your business to the next level. Ready to take your business into your own hands? Take the NACAR Consulting Allied Health Biz Quiz today. The second thing that you you mentioned. Oh, I'm glad you wrote them down. What was the second thing? I didn't. I actually got to the point of company <laughs> versus sole trader. <laughs> I think the next thing. I think the next thing was around the people who come and work with you. Oh, employee, contractor, employee. Bit like we could do a whole half day on this one, but the absolute not, all is not as it seems at times with with contractors, especially. Well, exactly. And I think there's a recent case um, that was handed down that was in the sort of food delivery services industry. Yeah. And it was always held out to those 
people who were engaged by those providers that they were in fact contractors and they had to look after all their own um, liabilities and the like. But if you are under the direction control of, um, well, what would be called legally the principal, let's just say the business owner. So the business owner can tell you, you have to wear a uniform, you have to accept these directions, um, you work, work with hours, yeah, yeah, you work within this radius. So it comes down to directions and controls from my perspective. Then even though you call someone a contractor, it, it, they're not necessarily so. But taking the, the, the jump backwards is that, look, when you're at the point when you do need help, um, and in the form of bringing on board employees. Firstly, fantastic. Um, kudos to you. Yeah, exciting times. Absolutely, absolutely. And you need, again, we talk about getting it right from the beginning. So it comes back, and lawyers always love to bang on about you need documents in place. You need to document, properly document these things. Mm-hmm. Um, so fundamentally, you bring on board an employee, you have to give them an offer of employment which of itself then merges or forms into a employment agreement or a contract of employment. Sports, yeah. yeah, so that'll that'll govern the relationship between you and that employee, their entitlements, whether they're paid under an award, um, their entitlements as far as leave, carer's leave and, and the like. Um, there's also provisions under the certain awards as far as things like loading. Um, so... That employment agreement looks at the nature of your business, what it is you provide. So in the allied health, often you're under the, unfortunately, title SCADS or... Oh, sometimes, but also HPSS. Also HPSS. Depends who... And that's like that raises such a good point. Like you've... It's really you need to understand who's coming in to work with you and what their role will be because you might have a team that is sitting across two or three different awards. Correct. Absolutely. And, it, look, it's your obligation as the employer yeah, yeah. on top of those awards. They move as far as entitlements and more particularly pay rates and the like. So, yeah, look, you need a proper employment agreement. The employment agreements that I put in place, um, I like to include more often than not, employment agreements are centred on what the employer has to do and the restrictions there that the employee has to do and, and what you know, restrictions there under and restraints and confidentiality. I like to include in employment agreements the obligations that the employer has. So what is it that you're obliged to do as far as an employer? Well, obviously, you've got to comply with any awards. Um, you've got to provide a safe place of work. Uh, you've got to provide education and the like. Um, so all of those things, think about the benefits that you are prepared to be giving to your employee and put it in your employment agreement because it's a two-way street. It shouldn't be a, a, simply, a, you know, a, a document that favours solely the employer. And I think from an employee's point of view, it's pretty refreshing to see an agreement where the employer is actually putting up their hand and saying, I've got obligations to you too, and I acknowledge them. So, yeah, employment agreements, very important, identifying whether um, someone is an employee uh, or a contractor. Contractors obviously are responsible for their own um, 
obligations as far as tax and the like, whether that a contractor is in fact an employee, which then raises issues, obviously, as far as mandatory things like superannuation. That's something you don't want to discover down the track where you've had someone you refer to as a contractor only for that person to be yes. determined an, em- an employee. So, yeah. Um, My toes are curled. We need to move on. Let's do. Let's do. Let's do. Uh, and I guess just quickly putting a bow on this, even as an employee, that might be um, permanent, that might be full-time, that might be part-time, that might be casual. They might be in for a short amount of time or something else as well. So there's nuances even within the Absolutely. department. Yeah. And they need to be addressed because that type of employment um, flows on your responsibilities as employer, depending on the nature of the employment, full-time, part-time, casual, yeah. seasonal. Um, yeah, you need to determine how it is. And sometimes you may well have a casual employee who all of a sudden is a permanent yeah. Employee. So yeah, you, you need to look at these beasts. And like you said before, with your um your over the fence <laughs> neighbor, if you review these things periodically, and I'd I'd suggest like six months is, is, is a good time to sit down with your lawyer and review your structures and, and who's who in the zoo in your, your business, your workplace, then these things can be identified and they can be identified, addressed, and sorted out before they become a massive problem. Yeah. 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 Good good sleep at night factor, I think uh, that stuff sort of brings. Yes. I am trolling my auditory memory. I reckon we could go to commercial leases because they're not things you just sign thinking that it looks all right. Well, yeah, exactly. And uh, the the thing to, to bear in mind is that when you sign up to a lease, you are contractually obliged to perform all of the functions under that lease. So say, for example, your business, you've decided to make a company and you take on a lease of premises, say, for three years. It will be almost given that the landlord's going to want you as the director to personally guarantee the performance of that lease. So we talked before about sort of the um, like a cloak or a shield of immunity. It's not immunity, actually. That's the wrong word. But the protection a company provides you, you will be required in certain circumstances and particularly in commercial lease arrangements to provide a director's guarantee. So that's you personally guaranteeing that the company will perform all its obligations under the lease. Uh, Yeah, and leases, look, again, it's it's compulsory that they be provided to you at negotiation stage, that they be given to you in writing. There are also, depending on the nature, like, for example, in Victoria, you have the Retail Leases Act, I think it's 2003, and there is a compulsion on the landlord to give you a disclosure statement. So that provides the fundamentals as far as your obligations under the lease. So duration, rent, how the rent's reviewed annually and they use the word review you can take a review as an increase um uh you're obli- you know your, your rights to exercise options to extend or get a new term and there's limited windows you can exercise those options in so yeah there's fundamentals the disclosure statement 
is it, the landlord must give it to you and you're meant to be given a, a copy of the proposed lease as well. Read those documents, absolutely, but my strongest advice to you, and this doesn't constitute legal advice, is see a lawyer about those documents because they, once signed, you are bound, bound. to and you are bound to perform. So that there can be a long tail, you know. I mean, you think of an annual lease, even at just in round figures at $20,000, you'd be lucky to get it. But say it's a three-year term, and you're looking at $60,000 plus GST, plus outgoings, plus interest, plus default costs. So you can expose yourself personally to a great, great monetary pain, yeah. So get the advice. Yeah. Who knew that there were state and territory variations on this sort of stuff? Yeah, I mean, you'd love to see it uniform. I think we're trying to make things uniform um, in law in a lot of respects, but anything in law, I think anyone will tell you, it, it moves at a glacial pace, uh, unfortunately. But, yes, yeah, certainly there are disclosure obligations. You need to know what it is you're signing up to before you commit to it and make sure you get those documents. And like I said, um, go and see a lawyer. And having um, having that intel, if you like, also puts you in a position to be able to negotiate as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's the thing. You know, in legal parlance, gee, I sound like a right, I think Ali G. You sound like a lawyer right now, Nick. I sound like a right novel. image was good till <laughs> um, Look, the, the notion is it, it is an offer to do something, an Correct. offer yeah. to enter into a relationship. Um, and that of itself is negotiable. You know, there are different ways to negotiate too. You know, you can, for example, if you have to move in and fit out premises, there's an enormous cost associated with fit out costs. You may have a, a landlord who says, okay, come in and fit it out um, and I'll give you a rent-free period while you fit it out. Yeah. You may have a landlord who's prepared to negotiate on the rent as far as reducing it for a certain fixed period. Yeah, it's all a negotiation and it is all open for negotiation. That is until you sign. Once you sign the contract, the lease. It's done. There's no it's more done. negotiating. Yeah. Yeah. Such excitement. Such excitement. Uh, and you can also um, politely request that your lawyer does some of that negotiation for you. If that's not your jam. Uh, and the funds are such, send in the troops. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, again, what I do as a as a you know as a business lawyer is I, I enter into those negotiations on behalf of clients. If yeah. they, you know, cash flow on a startup, for example, is a major problem. So whatever you can save up front is putting more cash in your pocket, more capital. You know, it's going to give you the opportunity to to better run your business. You don't want, for example, with a lease, you'll always be required to provide either a security deposit, which is normally three months rent, plus the GST, plus the outgoings. Um, or alternatively, they might want that security in the form of the bank guarantee. So you could have that three months worth of rent, plus, 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 tied up as cash that you could otherwise be using in 
running your business. And there are other ways to deal with security as well. So, again, absolutely worthwhile negotiating and, believe it or not, worthwhile seeing a lawyer about it. You mentioned cash flow, and that is about being uh, paid for the, you know, exceptional clinical and services that the business provides. Mm. I think uh, sometimes service agreements with clients are taken a little lightly and a little templated and perhaps need to be a bit more nuanced to the business and the service type and sometimes a bit more robust as well. I, I get a sense there's fear around it that business owners almost don't want to own the service agreements or they're uncomfortable asking people to sign them or the like. Yeah, that uh, that's absolutely the case. Um, but your obligations in particularly allied health is that your client, your participant, needs to understand the services that you propose providing. They also need to understand their rights in respect of those services. And unfortunately, their rights of a dispute happens. Additionally, you as the business owner, it spells out your rights. So your rights to be paid, your rights to terminate services if you're not paid, for example, Um, your rights if payments are late to charge interest. All of these things need to be spelt out as a matter of fairness to both your client and more importantly, to you, to your business. You need to know those rights um, because otherwise, if they're not captured in documentary form, then more often than not, things will be construed against you as the business, as the service provider. So spell it out. Work it Like I said, who am I? What am I doing? What am I providing? And I, my, my absolute preference is with these service agreements, they've got to be personalised because that's you. That's your business. It's a personal service. It's me personally providing my services. I then don't want to rely upon some generic template that I found on the web that I've literally just changed the name to my business because that's not me. Yeah. Uh, as I said, I, I sort of seem to be on rotate here as far as the working out of who am I, what am I doing, what am I providing, and how am I going to do it? Those are, the, those are those fundamentals. But, yeah, look, from my perspective, a personalised service agreement, written well, written yeah. so that you and, and your clients and obviously in allied health sometimes clients have challenges as far as being able to properly understand what it is that they're entering into. That raises a whole issue of unfair contracts and unfair contracts act relief and all of that jazz. You just want to avoid it. I'd even heard um, that there was a judgment in the American equivalent of the family court where to have children who were affected by this judge's determination, he wrote a lot of it in emojis or emojicons. Oh, gosh. Yeah. So think of your audience and who it is that you're providing your services to and ask yourself, is there a better way I can get across my message as far as my obligations and your obligations as the recipient of of my services? So, yeah. Uh, very recently, the NDIS review was handed down and they provided an easier English 
version of some of it as well. And I actually, I took a good read of that, must uh, must admit. Mm-hmm. But the issue of um, the clients understanding the service agreement needs to be matched by the business owner understanding the service agreement. And this isn't a moment where they can thankfully, you know, get it written and endorsed by the lawyer. Mm. Uh, the business owner and quite a few people in their organisation need to be able to stand to it and speak to it and understand it and need to be able to enforce it as well. Um, and I think that probably applies to employment contracts as well because there's a really good chance business owners will be questioned about both of these documents and you need some fluency and fitness around how to be able to speak to it um, there in the moment too, right? I agree completely. Mm. Look, it's your document as the provider. And if you have employees, it's their document as well. So it's absolutely fundamental that you understand and your employees understand the nature of the document itself. And with all things, we talk about review and being um, proactive. You've got to go back to these documents because once they're created, they're not set in stone. The services you provide, um, they will vary. They will evolve. And additionally, too, as you provide those services, you'll realise there may be shortcomings in your services agreement. So you need to go back and think, I used the term before, reverse engineering, but if you encounter a problem that then you can go back to the source, tidy it up, fix it up, address that problem, then that's good business because you will never get it right first time. It is... Not a movable feast. It'll it'll address the fundamentals, but you'll also work out how better to cover yourself in those service agreements. But that also, um, so I my um, what's left of my memory is dashing back twenty years, and our employment contracts and service agreements in the early two thousands were in legalese. Yes. Okay. Okay. So I wasn't sure of them. Um, clients weren't sure. We did not get it right. We did not mm. get it right, okay, first up. Second up, third up, we just kept improving it. Yeah. Uh, and while they became less less wordy and in more understandable English, through that process, I learned a lot. I learned a lot, and it was really strengthening my legal fitness as a director and so there was a lot of advantages in not getting them right and just reworking them and reworking them and reworking them because every time we reworked it, I learned more and I was able to speak to it and explain it more and more each time. So, yeah, there's a learning process. Absolutely, and invaluable. Go back and look at it. Um, consider issues that arise because they inevitably they do. They, problems pop up. And that then makes you look back and think, wow, could we have addressed that a bit better? How can we work around that? How, how can we fix that? How can we avoid that in future? So it's healthy business to be looking back. You need to put on a retrospective hat and look back and say, all right, are those documents still relevant? Can we do them better? Yeah. Can we make them um, easier to understand? Can we make them simpler? And that's, look, as a lawyer, um, a re- one of the more challenging things is to create an agreement that simply says all it needs to say. 
without dressing it up in flounce and florid. Um, It it is restraint, you know. I mean, I I used the phrase before, plain English. Mm. I I think um, lawyers have lost the or fail to understand the notion that we're not paid by the word. Um, (laughs) Being able to say something um, as simple as you possibly can, yeah. or more so the way you speak. And that's that's sort of what I say to, to mm. any of the guys I've mentored or have had the privilege of mentoring mm. over the, the, the last sort of 15-odd uh, years is write it how you say it. That's a good starting point. And then work from that. I'd love to see some of your contracts, Nick. <laughs> well, we, we, we don't. <laughs> Well, personally, I don't speak uh, in, for example, this manner. We refer to the above matter herein before mentioned and your letter of fourth instanta. Oh, I don't know what that means. Well, okay, just... you can stop now. I'm not I'm not liking this. Okay. Oh, yeah. Those days are gone, surely. Those days are gone. Uh, by and large, yes. Thank goodness. That's good. Okay. Let's select our last topic because we both know that there's at least 99 more, but I think I said this before when I quickly listed insurance. Mm. This is probably a whole separate episode, i got to say, but um, it's kind of interesting to think about what you need as a business owner, what the business needs, what the business owner needs, what team need. That's Yes, absolutely. And we yeah. There, there, there is a bit in it, as, as you, you mentioned, mm. but I'll try to be succinct. Should I sit down? <laughs> <laughs> we, we spoke at the outset about knowing your, your shortcomings, knowing the need to get uh, professionals involved who can advise you properly about the things you absolutely need. And one of them is insurance. So you need an insurance Broker, I absolutely thoroughly recommend that. It Personal is, and business, I will check. Yeah, absolutely. So, from the business point of view, um, you will you will need, for example, things like um, public liability insurance. Yeah. So if someone comes onto your premises and is injured, then that will cover you for that. You also need, I would suggest, professional indemnity insurance. Mm-hmm. So if Unfortunately, you make a mistake and something happens, then you should be covered as well. You should, as a matter of prudence, have um, business interruption insurance. And I think we remember the episode. The thing, a couple of years ago. The thing, Uh, the great interruption. uh, So, yeah, I mean, I would would recommend to to anyone to have business interruption insurance. Um, you will need as well, for if you've got premises, you ask yourself, as far as those premises, I need to insure my business assets, so my contents. If you own the building, I need to insure the property as well. So all of those things in a, in a business context, but then you need to think about more, well, not more importantly, but as importantly, your personal insurances. So heaven forbid, if you you fall off this precious sphere, what is it that you leave behind for those you leave behind to be able to get on? 
So do you have death and disability insurance? Um, protection. Income protection, absolutely. These are things that really, really you should have in place, particularly, for example, if you leave behind a partner and you have a mortgage on a property, you ask yourself, how's my partner going to service that mortgage? How are they going to make the payments every month? Am I leaving them with just a great big problem? Uh, so personal insurance is an absolute must from, from my perspective. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And not a set and forget. Absolutely not. A set and forget. Not. A good broker will be uh, phoning you up on a almost the same day every year. That Hi, is... how, how, how healthy are you? What do I need to know? And we'll do the whole audit and bring you three proposals and you get yeah, to you hang can... out with your broker for an you hour online. Set your calendar by that call. And it yeah, will come. I literally do. And it is your your obligation too, as the insured, the person with the benefit of the, the policy, the cover, that you have to make full and frank disclosure as well. So Absolutely. that happens every time you renew your policy. You know, you, you take out insurance for your, your car, you take out your, well, you've got to take out your third party. Mm. You might have at minimum third party property. Uh, you might have comprehensive, but every time those policies roll around, and same with your life insurance policies and the like, you've got to be able to tell your insurer anything that's relevant to their decision to insure. More particularly, an increase in premium the insurer could charge you, or from the insurer's point of view, and you don't want to find out this, that they're not going to insure you. Yeah. And I've unfortunately come across that situation too many times where, where clients have, have naively just thought, set and forget, I'm yeah. insured, I've got that insurance, it'll continue on till I'm, you know, 64, 65. Um, yeah, you've got to understand your obligations of disclosure. Once again, it's about showing up as an active and engaged participant. Uh, because if I think about insurance, I'm intrigued every year what other options I have and what products have come onto the market and what's changed here and there. And while it's not necessarily that hour or two that I particularly look forward to, I know I've got to do it, right? You've got to do it. And you've got, you've got the benefit of a good broker. They're not simply going to roll you over into the same policy year in, year out. There will be, they will make searches for policies that may well be cheaper, yeah. um, policies that provide better coverage, yeah. um, and alternate lines of insurance as well. Uh, things that we don't think about, for example, like business interruption until the, the thing, thing that happened the other year. Yeah. 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 So my, uh, from my perspective, insurance is fundamental. It's one of those fundamentals. Accountant, mm -hmm. insurance, a financial advisor, um, look, it may seem ironic, particularly when you're starting out, because my perspective, I, I sort of sit there and say, well, what finances do I need to be advised on when you have none? Uh, but also, um, yeah, as I said, your accountant and your lawyer. Yeah. Start as you mean to proceed. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. Well, Nick, you can have the last couple of minutes. Um what what would you like to leave listeners, allied health business owners, those curious about startup maybe, because we know our phone's been ringing the last two or three months. What would you like them to be uh, remembering or thinking about? Firstly, 
Um, I do want to acknowledge the fact of the services that your people, your clients, your listeners provide in the allied health sphere is simply remarkable. Yeah, life-changing stuff. Yeah, it's so fundamental and it is for the greater good. And I think there's a great degree of nobility in that. So thank you. And I know that with, for example, the rollout, of the NDIS that time ago, it did push a lot of people who were formerly employees into the space now of being small business operators. And that's something that I can understand you might not ever have imagined happening. So my hat off to you completely. Mm-hmm. Um, I hope that you can take from, from this pod um, those sort of fundamentals that, that I talk, spoke about at the beginning or we spoke about, uh, you know, who am I? What am I doing? How do I want to provide it? Um, and then additionally, too, is bring on board those people that will help you, that you can't necessarily do yourself. And look, it's not a reflection on your inability. It's just an acknowledgement of the fact that I can't be everything to myself more particularly. I need others, external professionals to come in and help me realise what my potential problems might be, and more particularly how to try to minimise them or ideally avoid them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, as I said, it's it's what you do is so fundamental that uh, I, I'd, I'm privileged to have gone around with my wife for now 32 years. And as husband of the year. As husband of the year. Yeah. Self-nominated. Yeah, remarkable. Um, <laughs> I wake up each morning and I feel lucky because there's someone there in next to me in bed. Often she leaves earlier. But Sarah is a, uh, she's originally a nurse and she has been a midwife. Um, I have, I think, an understanding of the the real constraints that, that you know, your, your listeners, your clients, your people, that they encounter in the sector they work in. They work under extremely tough conditions, um, but what they do, I have, I see it, this incredible service being provided with just grace and dignity. Um, yeah. So yeah, look, um, it's been a privilege. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's not often that lawyers get allowed to, and this I mentioned too. This is my first um, podcast, so it's a real privilege, Kathy, to, to have. We are are absolutely thrilled that you said yes. And I think we've both identified that there are a few other topics that uh, we can be discussing. So we'd love to kind of revisit this in the new year and get some of those other topics at least out in the open and and thought about. Thank you. Uh, Thank you so much. It has been um, an absolute pleasure and privilege to be inducted. So thank you, Kathy, and thank you to all your listeners who have endured my ramblings. It's it's a privilege. I think, I think we've both rambled. Thanks, Nick. Thank you again, Kathy, and a very, very Merry Christmas to you and all yours. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. For the show notes and other resources, our webinar replays, they're all available over on nacre.com.au. 
And if you're loving what you're listening to, please subscribe. We don't want you to miss out on a single thing. And if you want others to get the same benefit that you've had from listening into these episodes, please share this episode and any of the others forward to any of your other allied health business colleagues. And we are totally here for you. Don't forget for a moment that you can jump on in and book that power call and uh, we can see how we can help you get the best of business done. Looking forward to seeing you there.